Thank you for listening to this podcast from Living Hope Church in Skokie, Illinois, featuring the preaching of Pastor Daniel Mann. For more information about our church, please visit us online at livinghopechicago.com. We hope that today's message will encourage you in your relationship with God. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we are um, coming to the end of our verse-by-verse study through 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're in uh, chapter 15 uh, today. We're going to go about um, halfway through it, and then uh, we're going to finish chapter 15 next week. So if you have a Bible, turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, we're going to begin in verse 12. We're going to read kind of a, a lengthy paragraph here all the way down to verse 34. Before we read the scripture, I want to read a, a story to you. Uh, now, obviously, this is a, a made-up, fictitious tale, but I think it uh, proves and illustrates a powerful point. It's a story told of uh, two babies in a mother's womb having a conversation. One of the babies asked the other, Do you believe in life after delivery? The other replied, Why, of course, there has to be something after delivery. Maybe we are here to prepare ourselves for what will be later. Nonsense, said the first. There is no life after delivery. What kind of life would that be? The second said, I don't know, but there will be more light than here. Maybe we will walk with our legs and eat from our mouths. Maybe we will have other senses that we can't understand now. The first replied, that is absurd. Walking is impossible. And eating with our mouths? Ridiculous. The umbilical cord supplies nutrition and everything we need. But the umbilical cord is is so short. Life after delivery is to be logically excluded. The second insisted, well, I think there's something and maybe it's different than it is here. Maybe we won't need this physical cord anymore. The first replied, nonsense. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one ever come back from there? Delivery is the end of life. And in the after delivery, there is nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion. It takes us nowhere. Well, I don't know, said the second, but we will certainly meet mother and she will take care of us. The first replied, mother, you actually believe in mother? That's laughable. If mother exists, then where is she? The second said, she's all around us. We're surrounded by her. We are of her. It is in her that we live. Without her, this world would not and could not exist. Well, the first said, well, I don't see her. So it's only logical that she doesn't exist. To which the second replied, sometimes when you're in silence and you focus and you listen real carefully, you can perceive her presence. You can hear her loving voice calling down from above. I think that tale shows a powerful point. And I think every human heart wrestles with the question, is there life after death? You see that? little story about two babies in the womb of a mother talking about life after delivery really helps us to grapple with this idea of life after death. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of people. That God has put eternity in your heart. That we were made for eternity. But 
Yet we have this tension going on where in one respect our hearts are crying out for eternity. We know that we are created for eternity, yet our sinful nature pushes back and wants to deny and reject the notion that there really is life after death. Or at least doubt and question that such a thing is true. You know, many people in our day think that belief in an afterlife is wishful thinking. You know, uh, which brings me to something I want to say. I'm not a big fan of the word afterlife. I'm going to use it some this week and probably next week because it's familiar to us. But I don't think the word afterlife is probably the best description. It's almost like saying that, um, you know, when you're dating and you're engaged, that's love. But when you get married, that's after love. You know, the Bible teaches us that, that it's not just that right now is life, but, but, but beyond this, in eternity, in the kingdom of God, that is real life. And so talk about afterlife is the idea that, that, that life is now, and fun is now, and good is now, and, and, and eternity, that's afterlife. Some think that such a notion... It's wishful thinking. Listen to the words of someone who does not believe in life beyond the grave. He said this, We have a finite time on this planet, whether we like it or not. As much as we may wish to be immortal, there's no proof of an afterlife or heaven or hell or purgatory or anything else that suggests we will never die. The only way to conquer death is to leave a meaningful legacy while we're alive, to love people. Contribute to society in a way that future generations think about you. Did you, got what he, did you get what he said? He said there is no afterlife. And the only way to conquer death is to leave a meaningful legacy. Now friends, I believe that we should seek to leave a meaningful legacy legacy and make a lasting impact for the good of future generations. Can I tell you that the gospel gives us so much more than that? The word gospel means good news. And what I just read, that quote from a man who does not believe in life beyond the grave, that is not good news. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus said, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Life beyond the grave. That's good news. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want us to begin in verse 12. And we're going to read a lengthy portion of scripture here. The Scripture says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith also is vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we testified of God that He has raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. 
ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Verse 27, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under his feet, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under his feet. Verse 27 simply means that Christ is putting all things under his feet, but that does not mean that he's putting God the Father under his feet. That God the Father is accepted from that. Now, why is that? The reason that is, is because Jesus became the God-man. And as the God-man, he lowered himself and humbled himself and submitted himself under the Father as the God-man. And so he's saying all things will be put under the God-man's feet, Jesus Christ. But that does not include God the Father. For God the Father, the scripture goes on to say, verse 28... And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under his feet, that God may be all in all. Verse 29, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? If the dead rise not, let, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know, what was happening here, what we just read, is that there were some among the Corinthians who denied the bodily resurrection of the dead. And so Paul wanted to do two things. He, he was correcting them, but he also wanted to show them the importance of this truth that the dead will rise. He's correcting them that were denying the bodily resurrection of the dead, but he also wanted to show them the importance of the resurrection of the dead. This is what I want to speak to you about today, that what you believe about the afterlife is so important because it affects everything about you. What you believe about the afterlife is so important because it affects everything about you. And I want us to answer that question. Why is it so important? what you believe about the afterlife. Why is what you believe about the afterlife so important? Let me give you three reasons uh, this morning. Number one, uh, why is it important? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ, then we have a hopeless 
miserable existence. Why is it important what you believe about the afterlife? Because if there is no resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ, then we have a hopeless, miserable existence. Paul gets right to the heart of this in chapter 15, verse 12, and he says that some are saying among you that there is no resurrection of the dead. And in Paul's day, the Greek culture, which the Corinthians would find themselves in, they thought very little of the body. And physical things. You know, in fact, Paul was often mocked uh, when he preached about the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the fact that those who believe in Jesus will also be raised, resurrected, and will live with him forever. In fact, you can see that in Acts chapter 17, verse 32. It says that uh, when they heard of him speak of the resurrection, they mocked. The idea of bodily resurrection was, was unthinkable to the Greek mind, but, but not only unthinkable, it was irrelevant. They didn't even think the body would be important. You know, the Greeks were known for philosophy, for ideas, for concept, for knowledge. They had Socrates and, and Plato and, and Aristotle and these men and, and, and people who were known for their ideas, for their philosophy, for these concepts. And they were quite confident that any existence after death would be non-physical, would be non-bodily. And what's worse is that this thinking had infiltrated the church and that thinking that the body does not have a future contradicts Scripture plainly. And Paul's primary argument is this, that you cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ while at the same time denying the bodily resurrection of those who follow Him. They rise or fall together. So in other words, either Jesus did not rise from the dead and therefore his followers won't rise from the dead. Or Jesus did rise from the dead and so will his followers. This truth rises or falls together. So if one is true, that Jesus rose from the dead, then it's true that his followers will rise from the dead. If it's true that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it's true that his followers will not rise from the dead either. The terrifying reality that Paul was painting for them is that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then believers in him are the most hopeless and miserable of all people. They proclaim and testify of lies, he said, Their faith is useless and empty. What they had believed for the forgiveness of sin is not true. Therefore, their sins are still on their charge. And therefore, they are destined to perish eternally because of their sin. Therefore, they have no hope. And that's why Paul said, if, 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 if what we believe is a lie, and it just, you know, helps us to believe in something that's not real, but it gives us, you know, maybe a little bit of wishful thinking on this earth, but it's only about this earth and this life now. He says, we're all men most miserable. If there's no resurrection of the dead through Jesus, then those who follow him have nothing. Imagine you've been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. And while you're sitting there being told that you have this life-threatening illness, you're also told that there's medication. That's certain to cure you. You're told about a certain medication that would 
cure your condition. You get your hopes up. But in a few days, you discover that what you were told, that life-saving medication, in fact, does not exist. It's not real. It was made up. Your hopes were up because you believed something would save you. But when you found that it was not true, it left you hopeless, miserable. You see, all through Jesus' earthly ministry, he told his followers that they'd be hated, that they would suffer, they would feel like strangers, that they would be rejected, but that they had two wonderful realities. One is that he would be with them and that he would give to them peace and joy and meaning and victory in this life. And the second thing, even more powerful, is that he promised to them a glorious, perfect eternity in his kingdom forever. And without the hope of the resurrection, there's There's nothing. Why would anyone follow Jesus if all they had was a few things he promised in this life? You see, that's why he told them, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Have you ever thought much about our church name? Living Hope. It's based on of 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 3, that says that it's the resurrection of Jesus and our inheritance and future with Him is the basis for living hope, eternal, lasting, abiding hope beyond the grave. And can you imagine living life and believing that death was the end? Can you imagine living, believing that You're 70, 80 years if you're fortunate, is it? And I would say to you that there is absolutely no reason at all for us to be here this morning if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and there's no future resurrection for us in Him. There is no bigger waste of your time and mine than being here There is no resurrection. But if Jesus is alive, and if His promises are true, then we have no brighter hope. We have no more solid ground. And there is no better use for our time than to gather in His name and to sing His praises. And learn of His will. And do His work. Because in Him we have all things. Why is it important that you believe about the afterlife? Because if there is no resurrection through Jesus, then we're most miserable. Second reason why it's important. Because if there is a resurrection of the dead through Jesus, then we have the guarantee the promise, the guarantee of spending eternity in his kingdom. Paul declared in verse 20, I love how verse 20 kind of is a transition verse. 
He's going through all these things. If Jesus isn't dead, if he hasn't risen, if there is no resurrection, all, all these negative. But comes to verse 20 and he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead? And notice the last part of verse 20. And he's become the first fruits. He's become the first fruits of them that slept. So here's something amazing. Paul says, not only has Jesus risen from the dead, bodily raised, but he says he's the first fruits. Now, what's that mean? Well, you have to understand a little bit about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God commanded for the children of Israel, when it was harvest time and the first crops of harvest came, that the people were to take those first crops at the beginning of harvest and bring those into the temple and offer them in worship to God. You can read about this in Leviticus 23, verse 10 and 11. Now these first crops, the very first crops that came in harvest were called the first fruits. And it represented the beginning. That's why they're called the first fruits. Not the only fruits, but the first fruits. And it represented the beginning of harvest and the fact that much more crops were on the way. And, and likewise, Jesus was the first fruit of, of the resurrection of the dead. He was the first to experience bodily resurrection to eternal life. And the idea of the first fruits is that the children of Israel were to take those first crops to God in the temple. And it was an act of faith. It was an act of worship. They were bringing this to the Lord, recognizing He is the one that, that, that provided it. But also, it was an act of faith saying, we're giving this to you in worship, knowing that there's more to come. And this is a, a pledge. God asked for it. And by God asking for them to bring to Him the first fruits, it was Him proving and demonstrating that they could trust Him for more to come. That this was a pledge and that God was going to provide more. That this was just the first fruits, but there was more fruits to come. And so it is with Jesus that he was the first to rise from the dead, but his life is the pledge that many who believe in him and all who believe in him would follow him in resurrected life. And I love how Paul contrasts Jesus and Adam, that Adam brought death. And Jesus, the God-man, brought life. The bodily resurrection of, of all people will take place at the second coming of Jesus. Those who are saved by Him will be resurrected to eternal life. And then the scripture said here that we read that, that Jesus will, will rule and reign. And He'll put all those who who opposed God, all those who've rejected His Word and His law, who've lived in defiance to God the Father, Jesus will judge them. He will put them under His feet. He will subdue all things and He will present a perfect kingdom and all subdued enemies to the Father. And we who are saved by Him will live forever in His kingdom. And Jesus is the first fruits of that promise. He rose from the dead, and we are the harvest to come that follow him. You know, I love living in Skokie, such an ethnically diverse city. I enjoy hearing the stories of people I meet and how they came here, where they originated from, and what brought them to the United States, their story. And often I hear a, it, it, it's a similar type of story. Normally started with one person, a father, a mother, a son or a daughter, one person 
who comes to this country and they begin to make preparation and begin to make a way for others in their family. Maybe their aging mother or father, maybe a, a brother or sister, maybe a spouse, maybe their children. And soon the way opens up for the spouse and for the children and for an aging parent or for a sibling. There's generally the first person who comes and then others to follow. And in a far more significant matter, Jesus was the first to come from the place of death and the grave to a resurrected perfect body never to die again. He was the first. And he has now entered that country that we all long to go to. He's the first fruits and, and he is bringing us. We, we are following him and one day, one day we'll be, be there. We'll be with him in that kingdom. Colossians 1.18 says that he's the firstborn from the dead and that he has many brothers. That he's the firstborn of the dead among many brethren. In other words, we are his brothers and sisters that are going to be raised as he was raised. You know what we learn from Scripture? That death was never God's perfect will for mankind. Death was not God's plan. Death was the consequence of sin. Death is what God warned about. God's will and desire for you is to live forever in relationship with Him. You were made for another country. You were made for another kingdom. You were made to be with God. But I'm afraid sometimes we're too at home in this world. That we have our hearts fixed on, on this kingdom and and not on His coming and His kingdom. And think about this, that death is still loose. There's a sense in which the enemy of death is still reigning, that we still go to funerals, we still buy burial plots, we still place our loved ones in caskets and put them in the ground and bury them. But when Jesus Christ comes again, He was the first fruits, and when He comes again and He raises us up and the harvest is fully complete, death will be finally and forever be destroyed. I love what Revelation 21.4 says that, and there shall be no more death. Death. Why is it important what you believe about the afterlife? Because if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then we are hopeless and miserable. That's number one. Number two, if he has risen from the dead, then we have the guarantee through him of spending eternity in his kingdom. Let me give you the third one, last one. Why is it important what you believe about the afterlife? Because if there is a resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ, then it will affect how you live right now. You see, Paul understood something, that what the Corinthians believed about the resurrection of the dead didn't just affect their future, it affected them in the present. You know, verse 29 is kind of an obscure verse, and Truthfully, no Bible scholar knows exactly what it means. We just don't know enough about what Paul was talking about here. And the best explanation that I have found seems to be that there was a a practice in Paul's day where people would actually be baptized for someone who's already dead in, in hopes that being baptized for someone who's dead, that it would somehow affect their eternity. Now, please understand something. Now, now this we know conclusively from what Scripture teaches that Paul was not commending 
are advocating for this practice. It's an unbiblical notion. It is useless to be baptized for someone who is dead. It's useless to be baptized for someone who's alive. So why did Paul use this example? Paul uses this example to show that even misguidedly, People still do believe in life after death. He says that's why some people are baptizing themselves for the dead. It shows that there really is a hunger and a belief in life after death. In fact, this is one of the things, one of the many things I disagree with Mormonism about, but it's still practiced today where Mormons are baptized from the dead. And although I believe it's a a wrong and false, erroneous, misguided practice, It does demonstrate that they believe that there's life after death. And that's what Paul was saying. He says, what people believe about the afterlife affect them right now. He says, some people are being baptized for the dead. They believe in the afterlife. Then Paul gets closer to home. In verse 30, 31, 32, he talks about his own experience. And he says that he and, and other followers of Christ, they are risking their lives. They put their lives in jeopardy every day by preaching the gospel and declaring the name of Jesus. They face suffering and persecution constantly because of their faith. And basically what he's saying in in these verses is that it would be ridiculous to face such assaults if there's no life after death. So in other words, what was it that was propelling Paul and the other Christians to lay their lives on the line for the cause of Jesus? It's because what they believe about the afterlife affected them right now. Now, he says, we're willing to do this, and it affects the way we live right now because we believe in the afterlife. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he goes on to use probably a common saying of the day, and he's saying, look, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then it would make perfect sense for us to live like the Greeks, whose philosophy of life was let us eat uh, and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, it doesn't matter after death. There's nothing, so let's just live up the way we want to live. And Paul says, though, that that way of living is a lie. So he tells them in verse 33, be not deceived. And that little verse, verse 33, evil communications, the word communications doesn't mean, as we commonly think, just what you say, but it's the idea of, of who you associate with, that you're your friends, your closest acquaintances and relationships. He says if you're around evil people, then what can happen is that the evil lifestyle of people can start to corrupt your good manners, your good behavior. And so Paul says you need to awaken out of this stupor and live righteously, not sinfully. He says, don't listen to those who have not the knowledge of God. Stand firm in the truth. You know, about 400 years ago, a little over 100 people got on a ship that called the Mayflower because of the prospect of a new life and a new land. It was a miserable trip on that ship to America. Once they arrived, they endured incredible hardship that first winter. My question is, though, why would they put themselves at such risk? They'd never seen America. How'd they know it was real? How'd they know it would be a good land for them? They had the settled hope of a freedom and a bright future. 
that compelled them to make the sacrifices and believe that those sacrifices were worth it. And likewise, Paul said that it's the settled hope and sure foundation of the resurrection that compelled him and others to lay their lives on the line for Jesus Christ and to live godly in this present world because they because how they believed and what they believed about the afterlife affected their present behavior. You know, the world, and when I say the world, I mean those who don't follow Jesus Christ. They live for pleasure now. You know, I have no doubt that Friday, Saturday night, the bars and clubs were full. There's no shortage in our city or any city of immorality, of drunkenness, of adultery, of fornication day by day. There's no shortage of that. Why? Because the world believes that this life is all that they have, so they want to experience as much pleasure as possible. Paul said, don't be deceived by this kind of thinking. Because we are people who have hope beyond the grave. We're not people that believe that this life is all that we have. That we have a risen Savior who's promised to raise us up to be with Him forever. That death is not the end. And therefore, we're called to live for Him. We're called to worship Him and to proclaim His name. And we are called to live righteously and not in sin. But if we're not careful, we can allow the lifestyles of those who don't know Him to corrupt us. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a friend, a co-worker, an acquaintance, or even a family member whose sinful lifestyle is starting to corrupt you? I don't know if you've thought about this much, but we need to. That as Christians, we live with this tension. That, 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 that we're, we're being two directions that, 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 that we have to constantly be in mind of. That we're living in this tension of these two things. One is the fact that God has sent us in the world as ambassadors. That we're sent to love lost people. That we're to be the friends of sinners. That we're to be kind. That we're to know them. That, that we're to share the gospel with them. That we're to help them. That we're to do good works unto them. This is what the scripture teaches. So we can't be completely iso- isolated from lost people. And some of us in this room, that's our problem. You don't know many lost people. You try to stay away from lost people as much as you can. That's not what the scripture says. So the tension on one side is that God's sending us to lost people to be like Jesus, the friend of sinners. And on the other hand, we have this tension where God has called us out from the world. That we're to be separate from the world. That we're not to be yoked with the world. That we're not to be like the world. And so we live with this tension that I'm called to reach them. I'm called to love them. I'm called to be a friend of sinners. But I'm not called to be like sinners. I'm not to emulate their lifestyle. And here's what I think the problem is. That we need to be aware of. As Paul says, be not deceived. That we're called to reach the world. But the danger is that the world can reach us. That we're called through Jesus Christ to reach the world with the gospel. But if we're not careful... 
The world can reach us with their sinful ways of thinking. So Paul says, what you believe about the afterlife affects everything about you. And many say that believing in life after death is foolish. It's, it's wishful thinking. I want to remind you again of what I quoted at the beginning. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? Now, if you grew up in church at all, I want to ask you to not give me the patented Sunday school answer of, oh yeah, I believe that's true. Do you really believe that on the third day, he came out of that grave alive? And that he is alive in his resurrected body, seated upon the throne now, let me ask you a second question. Do you believe that he's the first fruits and that you and I who know him are the harvest to follow? And then my third and final question is how is that belief that Jesus has risen and that you're the harvest to follow. He's the first fruits and you're to follow. How is that affecting how you live right now? Is it affecting the way that you live right now? If you committed your life to Jesus Christ or made a spiritual decision, we would like to rejoice with you. Please connect with us on our website, livinghopechicago.com. We hope you'll join us next time for another encouraging message from God's Word.